Now, if I talked about the word conviction, would you know what I was talking about? Now, I'm not talking about the conviction as the judge slams down a gravel and you're pronounced guilty, nor am I talking about the word conviction, which means a sincere and tightly held belief. I'm talking about religious conviction of being aware of your sin in the presence of a holy God, of knowing how far short we fall and how we've let our Heavenly Father done. I mean, have you experienced that sort of conviction? And have you noticed that this is not often talked about and even more rarely seen in Christian circles today? Now, this was driven home to me a couple of years ago when I was in central China, a good friend, Ben, who's a minister in Auckland, we were there in China working with the underground church. Uh, We'd had a week in a Bible college, and this Bible college was hidden in a working factory. The area was wall-to-wall factories, and there was smog 24-7, yet tucked away in this disused administration block, well, disused by the factory anyway, was a Bible college. And in the equivalent of the mid-semester break for a week, uh, we taught a mixture of students and teachers and local pastors. Now, at the end of our time, I had the opportunity to lead communion. And so with the aid of a translator, the communion was going really well until we got to that time in the communion service where we pause and wait on God. It's a time to reflect and to quietly confess and get right. Now, in New Zealand, this is quite a quiet time. It's a reflective and sobering time. But I learned that that's not what happens in China because everybody started quietly praying to themselves or to the Lord. And then it got a little bit louder and a little bit louder and there was some sobbing over here and some tears down here and then the intensity really started to build. And I'm standing and thinking, man, thinking this is so not Presbyterian, <laughs> but very special. But very, very special. So I whispered to my translator and said, well, you know, is it time to move on? And he said, oh, no, give them a bit of time. And and it was just amazing. The sense of conviction on that place. Genuine, heartfelt desire to get right with God. And the veil between heaven and earth was very thin in that place. And I was completely undone and humbled to be leading these people in communion. What I'd experienced was heartfelt and genuine. It was a deep work of the Holy Spirit and it had a profound impact on them and on me. And that's what we're going to explore this morning. Godly conviction. And we're going to focus on the brothers who I believe were experiencing conviction. And conviction that we can learn from. So we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at what conviction is. We're going to look at the source of conviction, the result of conviction, and then fourthly, we'll look at the reward of conviction. What it is, the source of conviction, its result, and its reward. So we'll pick up the story where we left off last week. Joseph's now in a much better place. After years a slave and in prison, he's now second only to Pharaoh in the land. Not only that, but he has a wife and two little children. He's also very busy. As he foretold to the Pharaoh, there were seven years of plenty. So across Egypt, Joseph was building infrastructure 
and storage capacity. So when the seven years of plenty finished and the famine was about to start, the granaries were full. All was ready. Egypt was saved. But what about the surrounding nations? Once their reserves were used up, the people were in big trouble. The famine started to bite and the surrounding nations started to starve. Verse 5 of chapter 42. So Israel, that's Jacob's sons, were amongst those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land and the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived and bowed down with their faces to the ground, Joseph, he saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. It's been 20 years since the brothers have seen each other. Joseph was 17 years old then, but now he's physically matured. He's clean shaven, unlike his brothers, and his hairstyle is Egyptian, not the same as in Canaan. He has completely different clothes. He even uses an interpreter so the brothers don't think that they understand Hebrew. So it's no wonder the brothers have no idea that this is Joseph. This lack of recognition is only one way, for Joseph recognises them immediately, and oh, how the tables have turned. So Joseph puts acid on his brothers. Your spies, your intentions are dishonest. Prove yourself. And this is such a clever ploy from Joseph because not only does it put his brothers on the back foot, but gives him an opportunity to find out about his father, who he hasn't seen for 20 years, or his full brother Benjamin. Finally, the interrogation comes to a head. Verse 16. Joseph says, send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If they are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Finally, Joseph has his brothers where he wants them. 20 years. And as the second most powerful man in the land, he can do whatever he likes. He can leave them there forever to rot. He can starve them. He could have them beaten and whipped. He can make their life miserable. This is the chance for revenge. So what will Joseph do? Well, after three days, he calls them and then he eases their punishment. He lightens their punishment. Instead of Nine brothers staying in jail and one going back to Canaan to get Benjamin. He reverses it. Only one has to stay behind and the other nine can go back to collect Benjamin. And when the brothers, they hear this, their reaction is incredibly important. This is where the conviction is coming in. This is the focus this morning. Listen to what the boys say in verse 21 and 22. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That is why his distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. 
the brothers are experiencing conviction. Having to leave Simeon in Egypt trapped and helpless reminds them about Joseph, whom they sent to Egypt trapped and helpless. They're making connections, they're joining the dots, and God is stirring them. They are filled with grief and remorse, and they're sorry for what they did. They're convicted. But there's a really important question that we need to ask. Is this conviction genuine or not? Are they, are they not just feeling sorry for themselves and how much trouble are they in? Or are they genuinely remorseful of what they did to Joseph? You see, conviction can be genuine or false, and it needs to be tested. And this is what Joseph does, and through the next few chapters, he doesn't look at their remorse and take it at face value. Joseph puts them under pressure. And that's why he doesn't just stand up in front of them and say, look, it's me. He wants to test and to try and see if it's genuine or not. And that brings us to the next thing we want to look at, the next area, the source of conviction. It's because there is genuine and false conviction. How do we know the difference? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 is really helpful here. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow, that's a great definition for conviction. Godly sorrow, it's genuine. It leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Why? Because it is God-focused. Godly sorrow, genuine conviction, is upset that God has been let down. It's like a teenager who gets caught sneaking out at night. A teenager wants to be with friends. Now, when punished by her parents, she's remorseful, but she's remorseful about how she's much she's disappointed her mum and her dad and how much she's broken their trust. That's the main focus of her sorrow. She accepts being grounded as a way of restoring relationship with her mum and dad, a way of restoring trust. That is genuine conviction. However, worldly sorrow, even though it looks the same, is very different. Worldly sorrow can have the remorse and the apologies and the tears, and we make no know any difference looking on the outside, but the roots are in the wrong place. Worldly sorrow is focused on how much trouble we're in. Okay, It's focused on ourselves and how much trouble we're in. So another teenager gets into trouble sneaking out at night and his parents also discipline him and he's remorseful and he says he's sorrow but he's only upset that he got caught. And the punishment is something he resents. He doesn't accept that as a way of getting right with his mum and dad. He resents it. And he can often be stuck in his room, emailing and texting and planning his next escape. So when caught in the moment, he was remorseful, but it was worldly resourceful. It was focused on himself and how much trouble he was in. It didn't give two hoots about his parents and the trust that he had broken. And we see this. In the law court, don't we? When someone is convicted and go to jail and they're all upset, and yet are they upset just because they're going to jail, or are they upset because there's genuine remorse for the victims? 
And often the judges will comment on that, on the fact is that they, they, the judge doesn't think there's any genuine remorse. And that's why we need to ask ourselves, is conviction genuine or not? Is it godly or is it worldly? And so where do we find the answer? And the answer is in Jesus' words. And the New Testament reading, the gospel reading we had today. John chapter 16. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. This is Jesus speaking. So who is the counsellor? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying, unless I go to the cross and die, you cannot have the Holy Spirit. Because I have, you all have the Holy Spirit for those who believe in me. This is good news. But look, notice what the Holy Spirit's to do. What's the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict. I mean, it's his role. The Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. So see where he's convicting people? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's just explore those three areas. Firstly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That means we become aware of our sin in the light of a holy God. And that's why that situation in China, those folk knew they were coming to the communion table. They did not take that lightly. And in that space that is allowed in communion, they were convicted. The Holy Spirit stirred up some things and said, we need to get this right. Let's get this right now. So that's the first thing, conviction of sin. Third thing, conviction of judgment. Because we, come, we become aware that we deserve judgment. We're convicted, we've fallen short, and we know we're in trouble. And it's the Holy Spirit's role. But notice what's in the middle. Notice the word in the middle of that bottom line there on the screen is righteousness. Now that's a big theological word. What does righteousness mean? Righteous means being right with God. How are we righteous? It just means that how are we right with God? So the Holy Spirit not only convicts us of our sin and our judgment, but he points us to the righteousness of Christ and that Christ makes us right with God. So the Holy Spirit just doesn't leave us in a place where we're feeling miserable about ourselves and miserable about our sin. Conviction, godly conviction, the Holy Spirit will always point us to Christ. And because he is righteous, he makes us right with God. And so in those few verses there, we have this wonderful insight of what godly conviction is and that it comes because the Holy Spirit stirs, awakens within us that sense that we have fallen short. So let's go back to the brothers. Are they expressing godly or worldly sorrow? Is their conviction genuine or is it just a panic that their sin has found them out. So we go back to chapter 42, verse 21, and I'll just read those words again to remind us. Uh, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. So is this genuine or not? Well, this leads us to consider what's the result, what's the outcome of conviction. Well, conviction is an internal change, but there is always an external change as well. For those people that have really undercome the conviction of God, remembering that involves an acknowledgement of sin, but also a leading to Christ, 
then things will change. So how have the brothers changed? Well, if we pick up the story in verse 36, what's happened is that the nine brothers have gone back. <clears throat> they've gone back to Canaan and Jacob, their father, has said, well, what's happened? And they've explained what's happened. And they've explained that they have to go back to Egypt to rescue Simeon and they have to take Benjamin. So we'll hear Jacob's response, but notice Reuben, verse um, 36. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not come back to you. Entrust them to my care and I will bring him back. Verse 38, but Jacob said, my son will not go down there with you. And we've got to feel for Jacob. I mean, I'm a parent and I've never had to choose life and death between two of my children. He's caught between the rock and the hard place. Simeon is down in prison in Egypt. He's in a lot of trouble. He will sit there forever unless something happens. But the other alternative for Jacob is to send the rest of his sons and Benjamin all the way down to Egypt and risk them also being imprisoned and never seeing them again. It's easy for us to judge because we're distant from it and we know how the story ends. But yeah, it's a hard place for Jacob. And Jacob makes that call that he will not allow Benjamin and the rest of the boys to go back to Egypt. But it's Reuben's words that are really crucial here. Reuben's word. Look, listen what he says. You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him, that's Benjamin, to my care and I will bring him back. Notice the words of Reuben. Notice the heart of Reuben. Notice the change of Reuben. Because here we see genuine conviction. You see, 20 years earlier, he was prepared to sell a brother into slavery, just for a bit of money. Now, he's prepared to give up what's most important to him to save another brother. See the difference? 20 years ago, let's sell. Joseph's a pain in the bum. He's a show-off. He's spoiled. Let's sell him off and make a bit of money. 20 years later, he's saying, I do not want to see my brother Simeon rot in jail. I will give up what's most important to me my two sons. See, notice the difference. There's a change. Godly conviction brings about change. Not just Reuben, but Judah. Now, a few months later, they run out of food and they're starving, literally starving. And Jacob says to the boys, go back down to Egypt and buy more grain. And the, and the boys say, unless we take Benjamin, you know, we'll be thrown in prison or killed. And so Judah debates, argues, tries to convince his father. And so chapter 43, uh, verse 8, Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy along with me and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. That's Benjamin. I will guarantee Benjamin's safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him if I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you. I will bear the blame before you all my life. Again, we're seeing the results of genuine and true conviction. 20 years before, Judah was the one that suggested to the other brothers that we sell Joseph into slavery. And now, 
he's prepared to take the full responsibility to bring Benjamin home. See, this is the result of genuine godly conviction. It brings about change. It brings about change that people can see, not maybe in the moment, but in the medium and the long term. And we also start to see the reward of the conviction. We've looked at what conviction is, its source, the result, and now the reward. The brothers who would sell one into slavery have turned into brothers that are now really ready to risk their lives to save each other. See the difference? They were quite happy to sell one of their own into slavery and now they're prepared to risk their lives, to give up the most important thing that they have to save another brother. This is a wonderful reward. It's amazing. It's a change. It's bringing about a genuine love, sacrifice and reconciliation between the brothers. And this is a real gift. And next week we're going to see this played out in all its fullness. But it reminds us that when God awakens in us a genuine conviction... He always leads us into a closer place with him, reconciliation and also reconciliation with others. So a bit of summary as I close. And what is conviction? Conviction is a godly sorrow as we see our sin as we are in the presence of a holy God. The source of conviction? Well, it's the Holy Spirit who wakens that sense of our lack. It involves an awareness of sin and judgment that we deserve, but also the Spirit leads us to a place where Christ will make us right. But we must be on guard that our sorrow is not worldly, but our sorrow is godly. That it doesn't focus on ourselves, but focuses on the other who we have let down. And the result of conviction? Well, it's a change. A change expressed in a desire to think of others, to love others, in particular our Heavenly Father. And the reward of conviction, well, it's reconciliation with God and reconciliation with others. And so as we come to communion, there will be a time, a space when we will reflect. And we will say, God will speak to me. Do I have to get something right today? Do I, you know, I have to... Put something right with you. And there'll be space to do that before you come to the table. And as we come to, I want to finish by reflecting on Reuben and how far he's come. To please his father, Jacob, and to save his brother, Simeon, he offered what was most important to him, the life of his two sons. Now this is an amazing sacrifice. I mean, if you're a parent, just think about that. But it was an offer that wasn't needed. As events played out, he wasn't called on to make that offer. But it was for Christ. For in a true and a better way, Jesus did what Reuben did. In a true and a better way. To please his heavenly father and to save his brothers and sisters, that's you and I, he offered an even greater sacrifice. He offered his life. And God accepted. For the cross... The life of Christ was the only way to save you and I. If there was any other way to save us, then God would have taken it. But that offer of Christ's life was the only way. Because you and I are trapped in prison. That is the fault of everyone born that we are enslaved. The chains of sin and the shackles of death hold each one of us tight. And there is no way to break them except through the cross of Christ. And so, as the Holy Spirit awakens and stirs up 
this great truth and we experience a sense of godly sorrow, let this godly sorrow lead us to the cross where Christ makes us right with God. And that is why we come to this communion table. Let's pray.